You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Today's scripture passage, which comes from Matthew 2, 1 through 8. Please stand as we read this together. The visit of the wise men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, and Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Thank you. You may all have a seat. So I don't know if you noticed, Christmas is right around the corner. We got a tree up. We got some decorations up. And uh, to help to get you in the mood, we also, as a church, we created a Spotify Christmas playlist. And so you can check it out. It's right there, tinyurl.com slash village Christmas music. We love our tiny URLs. Uh, check it out there. Um, uh, it's, a, it's pretty diverse. And so you might like some songs, you might not like other songs, but that's the point. It's diverse. Okay? And we have different genres that are covered. And so there's some classics in there. There's some modern Christmas-themed music in there. There's some spoken word in there. It's inspiring, it's wholesome also, safe for kids, no cuss words, okay, so it's going to be great. Um, Today, we are starting a short three-week sermon series. Uh, We're temporarily interrupting our Galatians sermon series, we'll pick it up in January, but right now we're going to start this three-week sermon series going through the uh, the chapter of Matthew 2. And um, it's called The Christmas Journey. The more I read and study uh, this chapter, I, I feel like this is one of the the more I feel like this is one of the most misunderstood stories of the Bible and most falsely embellished stories of the Bible. What I mean by falsely embellished is we have all sorts of modern uh, understandings of the story that actually doesn't line up with what actually happened, and we miss the whole point as a result. For example, it's often recounted um, in the story of Matthew 2 uh, that Jesus was born in the manger, and then he gets these visitors from three wise kings. Maybe you've even heard songs about we three kings, right? Um, but this is wrong on a few counts. Number one, the biblical text uh, doesn't say how many visitors there are. Uh, we, it says that they gave three different gifts, but it doesn't say how many visitors there are. Two, the biblical text uh, doesn't say that they were kings. Uh, most scholars believe they weren't kings. And then three, um, it's more than likely that these wise men arrived in Bethlehem several months after Jesus was born, not the day of his birth. And most likely, Jesus, he wasn't in a manger anymore. He was probably in a house at this time. And so uh, the, the, our version, our modern version that many of us learn about um, is actually not as accurate to the text as we would like to think. So for a moment, for the next 20, 30 minutes, what I would like to encourage you to do is to defamiliarize yourself with the story. Pretend like you don't know 
know the story, and we're going to immerse ourselves in the story as if for the first time. And I'm going to take you on this little journey. That's what this series is about. Just like the wise men went on this journey to discover who Jesus is, we're going to go on a scriptural journey, a heart journey, to discover who Jesus is and what difference that makes in our lives. And so we're breaking up this chapter into three chunks. Today we're covering verses 1 through 8, and um, today's sermon is titled, From Passivity to Mission. And the idea is that this story is an invitation to us uh, to move from passivity to a place of mission as we discover who Jesus is. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. Just to recap, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, kings, uh, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, if you were to hear the story for the first time, I think there should be two things that would jump out at you, that would make you pause and ask questions. Number one, who in the world are these wise men from the east? Okay, and number two, how did they know that the king of the Jews was born? If you're listening to the story for the first time, you're probably wondering those things. For us who are overly familiar, we kind of take it for granted that there's these people showing up at the scene. But if you think about it, if you really think about it, to the original readers of the story, this would have been very strange, okay? Mary and Joseph, they're meddling their own, they're minding their own business, okay? They're, uh, Jesus is probably a few months to several months old by this time, so maybe they're, you know, they're teaching him how to roll over, or maybe he's starting solid foods. They're, trying, they're meddling, their own, they're, they're minding their own business, and then these visitors come in, and they have no idea who these visitors are, okay? And they're dressed in garb that looks foreign, and maybe they have an accent when they talk. Maybe they even talk in a different language. And, uh, and they say they are, they're from this country in the east. They've traveled for a long time to arrive. And they, they say, oh, by the way, you know, we, we come to worship your child. Because, I don't know if you know, your child is a king, the king of the Jews. And uh, we found you because we followed a star in the sky. Okay, so if that happened to you, if you had a baby in the house and that happened to you, that would, you, would, you would probably think, oh, this is a very strange scene. I feel like I'm in a dream. Okay? It's a very bizarre scene. So let's talk about these people. Who are these people? In the biblical version we are using, the English Standard Version, uh, we have the phrase wise men. The phrase wise men. In other translations, uh, the word magi is used. Uh, and the reason why the word magi is used is because the, word, the phrase wise men actually isn't really accurate. Uh, be, the original word in the Greek is magoi. Magoi is plural. Uh, the singular is magos. Okay, anyways, I don't need to nerd out. So, but for modern readers, okay, we don't know what a, a magoi is. And so what we do is we just transliterate this word into this word magi. And, um, and it's even more confusing because most people today, when we think of the word magi, all we think about is this story. And so we don't really have any other context for what a magi is. We have mages, I guess, if you play World of Warcraft or something, but we don't really have magi. Um, and it's also confusing. Sometimes when people see this word, they view it in acronyms. They think of modified adjusted gross income. That's not what this is, obviously, okay? Um, anyways, versions like the ESV, we just skip this word magi and we just put in the word, uh, the phrase wise men because a lot of people don't know what magi is. So who are the magi? Well, this word, one, one thing you can do is if you're trying to do a word study, you can look up how this word is used elsewhere in the Bible. And it's used one other time. There's one other section in Acts chapter 13 where it talks about this guy named Elimas. And there, interestingly, the ESV doesn't translate this word to wise men. It translates it to magician. 
And that's a whole nother level. What if there were three magicians visiting Jesus, okay? And uh, in other versions, they don't like the word magician, and they use the word sorcerer. So that's very interesting. You have this one word, okay, magi, and and in different places in the Bible, it's translated wise men or magician or sorcerer. So that's all. That's all you get in the New Testament. And so what in the world does that mean? So another thing you can do if you want to do a more advanced word study is you can look at how this word is used in other Greek texts outside of the Bible during the time the Bible was written. So if you look at the time the Bible was written in the few centuries before or after, if you just look at the whole of Greek literature, how did other people use this word, right? And interestingly, this word originated in the Persian Empire and it was used to refer to a class of Zoroastrian priests in Persia. I don't know if you've heard of Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism, it was a religion. It was the dominant religion throughout uh, most of like, like, like 400 BC up until like 400 AD. It was a dominant religion of the Middle East, what we now call the Middle East, modern day Iraq, Iran, things like that. And so Zoroastrianism is pretty complicated. We'll get into it, but they have the special class of priests and they called them magi. And these priests, they were known for their wisdom, for their astrology, for the interpretation of dreams. They were often consulted by kings uh, for the so-called abilities to interpret omens, to interpret signs in the stars. So that's what these magi were. So that's how uh, this word was originally used. Um, and in fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so the Bible, the Old Testament was originally, originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. But later, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And the translation of the Old Testament also talk about magi in one place, in a few places. But they're on the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, you have kings who are consulting their magi to interpret their dreams to ask for consultation. So that happens in the book of Daniel a few times. There's different kings in the Babylonian empire and in the Persian empire. Kings ask their magi for help and advice and for consultation. So that's pretty fascinating because that's what magi in original sense, Zoroastrian priests, that's what they did. So uh, fast forward a little bit. The Persian Empire fell. The Parthian Empire took over. The Parthians, this is a little bit of a history lesson, they were sort of like the, the Rome's biggest rivals for much of Rome's history. So Bethlehem, Judea, Palestine, where Jesus lived, they were part of the Roman Empire at this time. And to the, the Roman Empire's east was the Parthian Empire. And uh, in fact, 30 years before Jesus was born, they actually fought a war and Palestine was under Parthian occupation for a few years. Anyways, so Parthia, they were directly east of the Roman Empire. And it's interesting that these magi, they came from the east, they followed a star, and they arrived in the Roman Empire. So there's a lot of scholars, they think that these people were Zoroastrian priests. Um, And maybe they saw something in the sky, whether it's a comet, a supernova, an alignment of planets, whatever. They interpreted it as a sign in the stars. And as many of these priests probably would, they associated with some sort of uh, royal or political events. There were a lot of Jews living in the Parthian Empire, so they they might have done their homework. They realized maybe this is a fulfillment of Messianic, Jewish Messianic prophecy. Uh, But that's just a theory. We really don't know who they are. And the reason why is because the word magi later evolved so that it means all sorts of different things. And so if you look at Greek literature, even though originally it applied only to Zoroastrian priests, by the time this was written in Matthew 2, it meant all sorts of different things. So that's why Elimas probably wasn't a Zoroastrian priest, just because Magi meant sort of 
anyone who practiced magic sort of had the label of magi. And so maybe these people were Zoroastrian priests. Maybe these people were just generic magicians. Um, we don't know. And, um, and I want to give a caveat uh, because sometimes when we think about magic today, we think of David Copperfield or something like that. And so we might think, so these people who are visiting Jesus, are they like a bunch of David Copperfield kind of guys? So I'll say no. So that's one of the reasons why some translations use the word sorcerer as opposed to magicians, because the word magician today in our modern context really is more similar to the word illusionist. Okay, when we think about David Copperfield, we're not thinking about someone who actually does magic. We're just thinking about someone who does a lot of neat tricks. Okay, and they're really neat tricks. Um, but nonetheless, they're not, it's not magic, it's neat tricks. And back then, though, people didn't think of magic as doing neat tricks. They actually thought of magic as consulting with spirits and receiving supernatural information and practicing the dark arts or witchcraft. That's what they associated magic with um, and um, uh, fortune telling. And so magicians, by and large, were seen as wise people, powerful people, crafty people. And so by the time Matthew 2 was written, he's talking about these magi. We really don't know what they mean. It could be someone from another religion. It could be someone who's practicing magic in general. We don't know. But... We know they weren't just generic wise men. And that's really important because if you look at Jewish tradition, if you look at Jewish literature, wise men, by and large, are seen as positive people. But magicians, by and large, are seen as negative people. And I think that makes all the difference in the story. Because in the Jewish tradition, you never trust a magi. In the Jewish tradition, you never endorse a magi, you never follow a magi, you never welcome a magi, because magi, they were seen as enemies, they were seen as idolaters, they were seen as people who were dabbling in witchcraft or sorcery. So whether these were Zoroastrian priests or whether they were generic magicians, throughout the Bible, magic and sorcery and witchcraft, they were whole-scale condemned. They were seen as people you don't associate with these people. They were seen as you're, you're dabbling with demonic spirits. And so they were condemned in the Mosaic law, all the sorcery and magic and all this stuff. And even the few magicians we see in the New Testament, we see Elimas, we see this other guy named Simon Magus. Uh, they're also portrayed in a negative light. They're portrayed as crafty or greedy. And that was sort of their cultural reputation at that time um, in, Ju- in Judaism is, is that they were crafty, greedy, power-hungry people. And so to first century readers who are reading Matthew's gospel, they come across Matthew 2, it should have been very surprising and even startling that magi were the folks who recognized that Jesus was the king worthy of worship. And it's even more startling that Matthew 2 comes right after Matthew 1. What happens in Matthew 1? I'm going to give a one minute recap of Matthew 1, okay? First, the author Matthew, he gives a genealogy of Jesus And the point of this genealogy is to show that Jesus is in line, in the line of Abraham, in the line of David. He's in line to be the promised Messiah, okay? And then he talks about the story of how the angel appeared to Joseph and Mary, said, you're going to have a son. And and then it says, "All all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. And Matthew's point here is that Jesus's birth is fulfilling Jewish prophecy. So Matthew 1 is all about, I would say this is sort of the thesis statement of Matthew 1, it's, it's that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. That's a thesis statement of Matthew 1. And then immediately after Matthew 1 ends, it says, now there were some wise men from the east. Some magi from the east who came because they want to worship Jesus. 
it's interesting that the only people that Matthew lists, at least in Matthew 2, the only people who actually come to worship the Jewish Messiah are not Jews, but they are Gentiles. They're non-Jews. And I think the thesis statement in Matthew 2 then is this, Jesus is the king, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Jesus is the king, not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles. Or you can think of it another way. Jesus came to rescue and save not only those of the Jewish religion, but those of all religions. Regardless of your background, regardless of your culture, regardless of who you are, Jesus is for you too. And you see, the story of Christmas doesn't just have implications for Jews who are waiting for a Messiah. They had implications for Magi in the East. They had implications for everybody too. Regardless of what country you're from, regardless of what culture you have, regardless of what religion you practice, the birth of Jesus has implications for you also. I think that's what Matthew 2 is supposed to communicate. And check this out. Not only is it that the Gentile magicians are worshiping Jesus, but we also have the Jewish leaders not worshiping Jesus. If you look at this chapter closely, you'll see the contrast is right there. Let's read uh, verse 3 to 4. So the Magi, they go to the King Jesus. They tell, they ask Jesus, hey, where's Jesus? Where's the King of the Jews? Uh, Where's he born? Check out what happens. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He wasn't excited. He wasn't elated. He wasn't anticipating. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, not just Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled to hear that the Jewish Messiah was born. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So get this scenario, okay? So Herod, by the way, he's the king of the Jews, okay? So you would, you would think he would know a thing or two about Jewish prophecy. He doesn't. He needs to consult these Jewish people to try to figure out what's going on, okay? He assembled all these, people, these Jewish leaders, and it, it seems like the way it's read, it doesn't even seem like this was the news of the town, okay? It's not like people everywhere were flocking to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. It seems like no one even had a clue that Jesus was born. No one even had a clue that the king of the Jews was here, right? That's why they're, otherwise it would be on the news. King here would know about it. He doesn't. He has to consult these people. out to figure out, oh, what's going on? What does it mean? What is this star business? What's this Messiah business? We have to figure this thing out. So can you imagine what a letdown this must have been for the Magi? You know, they travel all this distance and they might have been thinking, oh, this is going to be this huge celebration. The king of the Jews is born. And they go to Jerusalem and no one even knows. No one has any idea what's going on. It's kind of like, you know, earlier this year, um, there was a royal birth. Archie Harrison Mountbatten-Windsor was born, if you're unfamiliar with this character. Uh, the son of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. He's the seventh in the line of succession to the British throne. Okay, so anyways, so imagine someone goes to, uh, uh, where do these people live? Is it London? Birmingham Palace? I don't know. Sorry. A frog, a frog something, right? It's frog something cottage. <laughs> anyways, some people they travel from a faraway land, and they, uh, they show up, and they go, where can I find uh, Archie Harrison Mountbatten-Windsor? Where can I find him? And people go, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? Who's that? Right? It's kind of like that, uh, because these people in Jerusalem, they have no clue what's going on. And not only that, okay, it's not just they don't know, but when they find out, they're troubled. They're troubled. He doesn't seem joyful or excited he and all Jerusalem with, around him are troubled to hear the news. And it's ironic because the scene is Jesus is a prophesied Messiah to the Jews. 
when Jesus is born, the Gentile magi, the Gentile magi, they travel a long distance to go looking for him. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders, they have no clue. The Gentile magi, they, uh, they're, they, they're anticipating, they're looking for him, they're searching for him, they want to worship him. And the Jews, they don't care about worshiping him, even when they know. And instead, they're troubled and they're afraid. This is the, the first time in human history that God becomes a man, that God takes on the form of human flesh. He's born as a human being, and Herod, he doesn't rejoice, he doesn't worship, he doesn't celebrate. Why? Because he's probably doing the math in his head. If Jesus is the king of the Jews, that means I can't be the king of the Jews. How could I be the king of the Jews if there's someone else to rival my throne? And so Herod, he can't grasp the spiritual implications of this because he's caught up in the political implications of this. And it's sad because the great irony of the Christmas story is that those who are least likely, that those we thought were least likely to embrace Jesus actually do. And those that, we, that you might think are the most likely to embrace Jesus, they actually don't. The Gentile magi go on this arduous journey. They find a worship of the Messiah. And the Jewish leaders, they're stuck in this mentality of passivity, this mentality of fear, and they don't do anything. And I think this irony of the Christmas story is also the same irony of the church today. And this is what I'm talking about. Today, often when God shows up, when the gospel is preached, sometimes the people who resist it the most are the church folks. Sometimes the people who resist the movement of God the most are the church folks. They have their systems, they have their traditions, they have their structures, they have their status quo. They don't want to stop being king over their own lives. Everything's in order. Everything is good to go. And so they become passive. But there are others who are not in the church, who are on the margins, who are on the outside, people who don't identify with the majority culture. And when they hear the gospel for the first time, they rejoice and they search and they want Jesus to be king. Maybe you are here and you're searching for God. Maybe you identify with these magi. Maybe you don't come from a Christian background or maybe you did and you went on a long journey far away and you have your ups and downs, you have your journeys and, and you're looking for meaning. You're looking for significance. You're looking for healing. You're looking for identity, whatever it is. I invite you to consider maybe you're looking for Jesus. I invite you to come like the magi did and make Jesus the king over your own life. Maybe you're here, you've already found God. If that's you, then I think what the story of Christmas should do for us is to give you a heart for the people who don't yet know God. Matthew 2 directly follows Matthew 1, which means that the heart of God is not only for the people who already know him, the people who already have the structures in place, the people who already have their lives together. The gospel is also for people who are on the margins. It's also for people who are far away. It's also for people in unreached people groups all around the world. The fact that Matthew highlighted this story to show that the people who were first at the scene the people who were first at the scene were Gentile magi. The fact that he highlighted this story should tell us that the people who need to be in this church today are also people who are outside the church. People who don't yet know Jesus. Because as Jesus said, he came to seek and save the lost. 
The church isn't just a place for Christians to gather and have a holy huddle to give each other a pat on the back, to tell each other how great of a job they're all doing and reading the Bible and praying and serving and volunteering and doing all the Christian things we do. The, Christian should, the church should be a place where we invite people who don't go to church. That's what a church should be. It's a place where people who don't yet know Jesus feel welcome and invited and we can experience God too. We can't be passive. We have to live on mission because the story of Christian, uh, the story of Christmas is the story of mission. Maybe today God is calling you to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You know, through the birth of Jesus, God has made himself known to people all over the world. Um, in Matthew 2, God made himself known to the Magi through a star in the sky. And today, one of the primary ways God makes himself known is through missionaries, through people who are telling other people about Jesus. So if that's something that you want to give to, I encourage you to do that. But I think even bigger than that, I want to encourage you to consider who is God calling you to share Christmas with today? Is there anybody in your life, whether it's a family member, a friend, who doesn't yet know the gospel, who hasn't been changed by Jesus, who are like Gentile Magi? Maybe they're searching in their own different ways. Maybe they're looking for something out there. Maybe they're not looking at a star necessarily, but they're looking for some sign, some clue. And maybe that clue is you. And maybe you can be that star to point people to Jesus. In a moment, we'll be moving into a time of communion. The communion is a time when we remember the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is a strange story. It's a story of the Son of God who chose to be born so that he could die, so that we who deserve death could be born again. That's what the gospel is. It's a story of the Son of God who was born to die on a cross so that we who deserve to die can be born again. And the thing about communion is that it isn't theoretical. It's not abstract. It's not just some mental things you do in your mind. You're actually coming up. You're taking the bread. It's a tangible, physical act. You take the bread. You dip it in the cup. You eat it. You taste it. You feel it. And I think that's a, that's a sign of what Christmas is because Christmas shows us that God isn't just a theoretical, abstract concept. Christmas is about God becoming flesh. It's about the abstract becoming physical and tangible. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus cried. People heard him cry. Jesus ate. People saw him eat. Jesus did these physical, tangible things on earth. And that's a sign to us to, and, and so it's a communion is a sign to us that Jesus lived that life. People touched him, people heard him, people saw him. And when he died on the cross, people saw him do that too. People saw him as he was beaten. People heard him as he was crying. People touched him as he was nailed to the cross. And communion is a taste of that tangible reality. So when you're ready, you can come up on either side of the aisle. Take the bread. It represents Jesus' body broken for you. Dip it in the cup, representing Jesus' blood shed for you. Eat it there and remember Jesus.